everyone, once again. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. How are we doing in the room this morning? We doing good? Feeling pretty good? That's awesome. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining in online. That was a great whoop over there. So unless it was somebody over there and they, you learned how to throw your voice, I don't know. But uh, uh, again, uh, welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. Uh, just really thankful that we are all here uh, checking out uh, what God wants to do in our lives and to submit ourselves underneath God's word, which is something that we just want to do and make it a habit of doing every single time we gather, every single weekend at our services. And so if you don't know me, uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus, and it is my privilege to be able to share this time together with you here this morning uh, as we continue in a series that we began uh, all the way back at Easter. So we launched the series, Jesus Overall at Easter, and this has been kind of a lengthy series for us, so I don't pretend that all of us in the room have had an opportunity to kind of be a part of every single conversation. So because of that, just allow me a second to maybe catch us all up to speed as to what we've been doing in this series or how we've been progressing. So uh, the best way to think of Jesus overall this series is actually to consider it or think of it as a set of mini-series that are all looking at different aspects of what it would mean for a follower of Jesus to live in light of Jesus's resurrection and ascension and his installation as Lord over the entire cosmos, over the entire world, over the entire universe. And so we've been kind of asking rhetorical questions that, well, hey, if this is true, again, if by virtue of Jesus's death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promised second coming, if he is indeed ruler over all, if Jesus is ruler over all things visible and invisible presently, as our kind of home-based passage for this series, Colossians 1, describes, then if that's true, we're asking the question, we're asking this, this is important, what would it look like for us in our lives to align ourselves and everything about ourselves, every circumstance and every situation that we find ourselves in, what would it look for us to align ourselves with that concrete truth, with that reality of Jesus's firstness? And we've been saying that maybe not so much do we make or are we willing to put Jesus first in our own lives, that's good, but we're actually saying this, that instead, because Jesus is first, right? He's ruling and he's reigning over all. Because he is first, what would that mean for us as we look to live our lives practically in the day-to-day, -day, in the stuff that we go through in life? What would it look like to bask in the eternal reality of Jesus's firstness? And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we actually clicked into the latest of these mini-series, something that we've been calling Jesus Over My Pain. And last week, Pastor Tony walked us through uh, what he called, I really like this language, uh, what he called a specific species of our pain. And specifically, he was saying the species of pain we looked at was regret. So looking back at our past, our failures, our hurts, the remorse that we have for things that have done in our, in our history, and how that translates or how that influences and impacts our lives in the present time. And so uh, this week, we are going to continue along this trajectory, and we're going to look at another, maybe what we would call species or genre of our pain. And specifically, uh, I think this species or genre of our pain is very much like what I would consider the flip side, or maybe even we could say the complement to the pain of our regrets. So this morning, what I'd like to walk us through is Jesus over my anxiety. Jesus over my anxiety. 
And so uh, before we begin, or as, kind of as we get started, you might be like, well, hey, listen, wait a minute. Seth, you just said that anxiety, you, you just made the claim that anxiety is sort of like the flip side, right? Or it's the complement of regret. What, what do you mean by that? What is the connection? Well, maybe simply put, and I think this is gonna be helpful. Simply put, if we were going to position ourselves, who we are, you're in the middle here. You're the orange person, the nondescript orange person in the middle here. You're in the present, this is you. As you think about the pain of your past, as you go back there in your history, as you recount some of those failures and what those failures do to you in the present, when you look back, what are we dealing with, right? Well, we're dealing with the idea of regrets. The regrets are, again, the backward-looking pain of our past that influences our present. But my question is, if we were to flip this arrow around, if we were to project the reality of potential pain that we might experience in the future, let me ask you, what are we dealing with? Anxiety, right? Anxiety is this forward-looking future. It has this forward-looking future component that anxiety looks forward at possible futures and sort of mitigates the risk and analyzes and sees, is there going to be pain or is there going to be threat to my well-being in the future? Now, actually, um, this definition or this idea of our anxieties, worries, or fears kind of manifesting perceived future pain, its future orientation, is very much confirmed by uh, a classic definition that you'll find from the American Psychological Association. So in other words, this is what the experts have to say about our anxiety, what it is. So the American Psychological Association, it says this, I thought this definition was really helpful. It says anxiety is an emotion, right? We know it's a feeling that erupts within us that's often characterized by feelings of tension. Let me just ask you guys, have you ever sensed that feeling of pressure or a burden on your chest or your heart palpitating heavier and heavier and faster and faster? That's a manifestation likely of anxiety. Anxiety is an emotion that's characterized by these feelings of tension, by worried thoughts, and also, like we already mentioned, physical changes like increased blood pressure. There's a physiological manifestation that lets us know. It becomes the indicator light in our lives that something is going on with these worrisome thoughts. Uh, this definition goes on to say, people with anxiety disorders usually have recurring intrusive thoughts or concerns. If you've ever lost focus in what you're doing in the day-to-day because your mind has wandered about the prospective future, that guys, may or may not even happen. It may or may not even go down the way that you're predicting it will. And if you've experienced these thoughts intruding on your day-to-day, it's anxiety. Uh, people who suffer from anxiety and disorders, they may avoid certain situations out of worry. I think this last one is really helpful, this last sentence. Anxiety is considered what a future-oriented, often long-acting <clears throat> response that's broadly focused on what? On a diffuse threat, the threat of potential pain or harm in my future. Now, what I found is interesting is we actually don't probably need definitions of anxiety to know when they uh, erupt in our lives. But what I found is helpful is there, I think there's kind of three ingredients 
or three features that will help tease out a little bit to diagnose and create a foundation, to diagnose anxiety and to create a foundation for the conversation that we're gonna be having today. I noticed that there's three ingredients and not just in this definition, but on uh, the, the number of other definitions that I consulted about anxiety as I prepared for this message this week. I think we could really distill that there are three main components or three main features that we find about our anxieties. And I think they're this is that almost every definition of anxiety includes these three things. Number one, there's the uncertain future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't predict it. And this uncertain future, often when anxiety begins to produce some self-talk within us, anxiety is teaching us and training us and imposing on us narrative statements like, man, I'm I'm unsure, I'm unsure. I don't want to invest the entirety of myself in something because I'm not sure how this thing is going to play out. I don't know. Another component of anxiety is not just uncertain futures, but also this pervasive lack or sense of a lack of control over the outcome, a feeling of powerlessness to be able to contort the future in a way that will produce what I perceive to be my well-being. And when anxiety rears its ugly head, it tells us, it pulsates within us to say, I'm unable. We say, I'm unable, I'm incapable, I'm powerless to stop whatever's going to be coming tomorrow. And not only do we have uncertain futures and lack of control, this is a key one, right? Anxiety involves the threat of pain, the threat of an imposition on our well-being. And when anxiety speaks that little voice inside of us, it translates this and it says to us, we say to ourselves, I'm unsafe, I'm unsafe. And again, like I said, the accuracy of definitions like these is just merely played out in our everyday experiences, aren't they? When we wrestle with anxiety, when it rears its ugly head in our lives. And uh, this actually happened to me this past week. And just let me give you a silly example just from my own life. Let me just lay it out there in front of uh, hundreds of people in this room, right? My deepest, darkest secrets, not really. But so this past week, uh, actually what I need to do probably is take a step back and uh, I need to introduce you to a family member of mine. uh, And his name, his name is Charlie. Charlie, okay? So again, this is a silly example, but I think it's, it's good nonetheless. So this is Charlie. Everybody say, hi, Charlie, right? Sometimes I call him Charles, and I'd say it like that. So here's Charlie. Now, some of you are like, ah, Charlie is really, really cute. Others of you I know, like inside, you want to shout blasphemy because I literally put the devil's face on a PowerPoint slide in the middle of church, right? So you, you don't like cats. But so here's a picture of Charlie. I wanted to stop here, but I couldn't help myself. Here's another picture of Charlie. Do you see Charlie in this picture? So this picture was taken uh, this past December at Christmas. So he is in our Christmas tree. And by the way, this is about six and a half feet up in the air. Charlie loves to like, it's a, it's a fake tree. He loves to like meander up through the fake tree. And then look at this, peering out like he's going to destroy you, right? And so I, guys, I swear to you, when I took this picture, I could have sworn that I heard Charlie audibly say the famous words of Liam Neeson in the film Taken, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. So this is Charlie. Now, here's, here's one thing you need to know about Charlie. One thing you need to know about Charlie is this. Charlie is an idiot. That's right. Charlie is an idiot. Uh, I have a lot of remorse 
for adopting this cat. I love him like crazy, but a lot of remorse. I am experiencing constantly the pain of my past regrets when it comes to adopting Charlie. Why? Well, here's, what, here's something you need to know about what's happened in Charlie's past that has created a little trauma. Charlie proceeded when we adopted him when he was about four months old and at about seven months old, so three months into him being a part of our family, Charlie ate a Nerf gun dart and Charlie eats this Nerf gun dart. My son has these Nerf guns and he's like, oh, that's just so stupid. But Charlie winds up, you know, the plastic end of that Nerf gun dart. That got lodged in Charlie's intestine. And we proceeded to have to take him to the vet and spend literally, I'm telling you guys, thousands of dollars to have, to have him get this surgery to remove the Nerf gun dart. Some of you in the room are like, you're, you're an idiot. Like, like, there's no way I would do that. But like, no, nevertheless, I really care about this cat. Okay, so, so check this out. Pain of past regret. So this means that every single time Charlie yorks up a furball, I go into a straight up panic attack. Like I have a panic attack because that's what he did when he swallowed the gun, the, the Nerf gun dart. So I go into in a, in a flop sweat. Like I'm just like, oh my gosh, what, what in the world? So this, hap- this proceeds to happen uh, this past Monday and it's never at a convenient time, is it? At three in the morning, I am awoken to the sound of and I'm telling you guys, because of the trauma of my past, I like went 90 degrees, sat up straight and I immediately started to panic. I started to sweat. I could not fall back to sleep. And I'm telling you, all these scenarios that I invented in my mind just begin to spiral and spiral out of control. I'm like, great. I know exactly what happened to Charlie. I'm hearing the hockle, but Charlie, you know what he did? He ate another Nerf gun dart, that little son of a gun. He ate another Nerf gun dart, right? And I know what's happened. I know after the purge of all the darts that were in our house, he found a stash. He ate it, and now I know exactly what's happening. That plastic piece at the head of that Nerf gun dart is now lodged again in Charlie's intestine. That's what's happening. And so I'm freaking out. I'm like, is this cat going to be okay? I really care about him. But then I'm thinking, if he's not going to stop yorking up fur balls here, if he's not going to stop doing this, I got to figure out, like, do I take him to a 24-hour veterinary hospital? Listen, if you work for one of those, God bless you. But I'm just telling you, have you ever been to a 24-hour veterinary hospital at four in the morning? Not only is it bewildering and disoriented, it will drain your bank account. It will straight up. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to take him to the 20. I know, I'm gonna, life's going to be miserable to, for me tomorrow. I'm going to have to take him to the 24-hour vet. And oh, that's going to that's gonna drain my bank account. Like, I got to send kids to college. What am I going to do? And, I'll, and, and guys, within two minutes, within two minutes, we went from all the way to like, we're going to have to put him down. We are going to have to put this cat down tonight. What am I going to do? What am I going to tell the kids, right? Now listen, now listen again. This is absurd. It's a silly story. And some of you again are like, bro, I hate to break it to you. Charlie's not the idiot in this story. Charlie ain't the idiot in this story. But listen, I I know, I know that my reaction is absurd. It's irrational. It's illogical, right? I know this, but let me ask you this. Isn't that what makes, isn't that what makes anxiety so agonizing in our lives? Because we know often all the machinations, all the predictions that we drum up and spiral out of control in our heads, often those things are, sometimes they're legit, but so often they're ridiculous. They're crazy. It's crazy talk. 
And even, guys, even in those moments where we feel like maybe we have been able to manage the onset of an anxiety attack or some kind of anxiety as it rears its ugly head, even in those moments when we manage it, I think we know that we just simply can't shake that deep, visceral, haunting reality that we are not in control as much as we want and as much as we would hope that lingering deep sense of powerlessness to control the outcome. Powerlessness to control the outcome. And I think at the end of the day, what we really want in those moments of what feels like helplessness and despair, what we really want at the end of the day, honestly, maybe isn't even about grabbing more control to work the outcome It's not even necessarily about control or some ability to predict the future. Guys, I think what we really long for more than anything else is that we're gonna be okay, right? Is that we're gonna be okay. Or that at the very least, man, is there someone or something that can ensure my safety, my well-being, my security, in my tomorrow. Guys, I think what we really long for, what anxiety shows us is that we long for peace, don't we? We long for peace. And let me just tell you, if all of this, if combating and overcoming anxiety is all up to us, I'm just here to be honest with you this morning. If it's only up to us, we are right to despair. We are right to despair. I think this morning what I also want to tell you is that there is good news from God about the possibility of overcoming and living in increased freedom and liberation from our worries, our fears about the future, and our anxieties. That if most fundamentally, if the gospel of Jesus Christ, if the good news is about Jesus being Lord over all, if it's about being Lord, if he's about him being Lord over all, then that means, guys, I want to to tell you this morning, we have real hope to overcome anxiety. We have real hope to increasingly come into liberation from anxiety. And all I want to do this morning is I want to direct our attentions to a very classic passage of scripture that relates to our anxieties and our worries. So if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to take them out and make your way to this passage right here, to Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven. Philippians four, four through seven. Now, if you do not have a Bible with you and you want to follow along in a paper copy of the Bible, there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. This passage will be found on page 953 in those Bibles. And lastly, If you don't have a Bible uh, of your own, we just want you to go ahead and take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. Just, it's our way of saying, thank you for being here. It's our gift. And just hopefully it expresses our heart that we want to get what we believe is God's very word to us, his message to us. We want to get that in your hands. All right, so Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven. This is what the apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, is saying to a group of Christ followers in the ancient city, the ancient Roman province or colony of Philippi. And so Paul instructs them this way. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so as uh, we kind of begin here, as we look to maybe unpack this passage and see what it might have to say about overcoming our anxieties, worries, and fears, I think it's gonna be important for us to begin with the fact that we have just dropped in, maybe kind of unannounced, to the very end of a letter that Paul is writing to a group of people who lived in a very different time, very different culture, and a very different mindset or perspective than we do here today. And so acknowledging that uh, may help us a little bit to navigate through uh, potentially some uh, unfortunate byproduct of just dropping into this passage right here. And I don't know about you, but maybe some of you in this room, I, I think there might have been some gut reactions that likely emerge when we do this exercise of just parachuting into a passage like this. And so my guess is that some of us might have been, maybe potentially, a little less than satisfied with this phrase right here, especially as it relates to our anxieties, worries, and fears. Paul says, right, do not be anxious about anything. Now let me ask you, does that seem like a little bit of a, maybe a gross oversimplification, right? Does it seem like maybe Paul is just almost trivializing the severity, the complexity, the nuance, and the difficulty of anxiety, right? We asked Paul, Paul, what should I do with my anxieties? It feels a bit, if you're like me, it feels like when you read this, Paul's just saying, well, just don't do it. Just don't be anxious. So in other words, if somebody came up to me and they just unloaded their deepest, darkest fears about the future, Paul might be instructing me to be like, this is a command of God here. Stop being anxious. What's your problem? Like, just chill out, man. Like, go with the flow. Positive vibes, baby. Come on, don't be anxious. Grab a hot dog. Play some volleyball. As a lame church picnic joke. I had to get in there somewhere. So this was the, seemed like the likely or the, the best place to do that. But now let me just say this. If you bristled at this phrase or this way of understanding this phrase, let me just say you're not alone. You're not alone. And as a matter of fact, I think that Paul himself would even join you if this is what we meant by that phrase. Like, just don't do it, man. Just chill out, have positive vibes. Now, time doesn't permit me to go in deeply into the reasons why I think this, but I do think that we are given in this passage three key features that surround the statement that Paul makes here at the beginning of verse six about not being anxious about anything, that I think we are given three key features that surround this command that absolutely blow the lid off of what Paul really intends us to capture when he gives us the command not to be anxious about anything. In other words, I think that this command is encased in three features that we see in this passage. And I'm just gonna give them to you and then we'll walk through them one by one and see here in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, how these impact our reading of Paul's command here. And I think it's this, three key features that we can't miss in this passage. Number one is that Paul, before he even gives the command, he speaks first of a new reality, 
a new objective reality that has the potential and the possibility to change our paradigms as it pertains to our anxieties, worries, and fears. And I believe that once we capture the new reality, that the new reality opens up into a free invitation that is available to anyone who names the name of Jesus, anyone who follows Jesus. And that this new reality that opens up a free invitation is capped off by a certain promise, a certain promise from God that Christ followers can take to the bank. So let's, let's do this. Let's look at the first one, the new reality. What kind of new reality does, new reality does Paul offer to followers of Jesus that would change their perspective about anxiety and worry? Well, I think the new reality is found again before he issues the command in verse six. And it's found in this short little phrase. It's actually only three words in the original language. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. And specifically, I think we can whittle it down. We can focus it in a little bit more. I think the new reality is contingent upon this little word right here, this word near. What would it mean for the Lord to be near? And how does that give us a new paradigm in viewing overcoming anxiety? Well, here's what's interesting. In my study and my prep, I actually discovered that Bible scholars debate, there are pretty much two, there's a friendly debate going on in the Bible nerd community about what this word is or how this word should be translated in this passage, in this little phrase, the Lord is near. And so basically the two sides of the debate are like this. It's a friendly debate. One side says that this idea of the word near this idea should be understood in what's called a temporal framework. That the word near is something called a temporal reference. You're like, what is that? Well, a temporal reference is maybe as it sounds to some of you. It has to do with time or it has to do with sequence. A soon-to-be event that will occur from the standpoint of or the position of the person that that statement is directed to. And so the Bible scholars that think that the Lord is near, that the word near is a temporal reference, they would argue that the phrase the Lord is near has everything to do or it's pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The certain, literal, historical, bodily return of Jesus. And so if this is the case, if the Lord is near is a temporal reference, if near is a temporal reference, it would mean this, that Paul intends to say, guys, you have to know this. The time for the promised return of Jesus to reconcile all things to himself as the Lord over all creation, that event is coming. It is near. It is close. It is assured. It is certain. It's imminent. It's imminent. Now, alternatively, if this is not, if the Lord is near, if the word near is not a temporal reference, it could also be other scholars debate and say, no, it's a spatial reference. And spatial is as it sounds. It has to do not with time, but with space. So in the same way that this music stand is spatially near, it is close, that if I simply reach out my hand, this is at hand and I can grab a hold of that reality, it is available, it is immediately available to me. And so if the Lord is near, if near is to be a spatial reference, it would mean this, Paul would mean to say, it's awesome, Jesus is present with his followers, side by side with them on the path and the journey to their heavenly home. That Jesus is relationally close. 
Let me just uh, hopefully clarify this with a quick, quick illustration, quick example. Now, let's just say that I am driving down the freeway. It's about four in the morning and I'm taking my family on a vacation and we decide to do that thing of driving through the night. So that means that if you're like any parent, your kids are snoring in the back seat and you're agonizing because you wish you could be doing what they were doing. And also your wife is snoring on the seat behind you. It's just a rub it in, you know? So let's just say I'm driving down the freeway at four in the morning and I'm getting beleaguered. I'm fatigued. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to finish this journey. And then all of a sudden, if I rouse my wife from sleep, if I wake her up and I'm like, honey, good news, Starbucks is near. What am I saying there, right? Well, I'm saying that likely I saw a sign on the freeway that indicated that there's going to be a future reality that is coming that in maybe a mile or two when I get off that exit ramp, I can enjoy the, the fruits of the delicious Java beverage, the grande oat milk latte with three honey packets and cinnamon powder, right? So th- that's gonna happen soon. Now think about it. What does that do to engender confidence and hope in me? Well, between when I said that phrase and when I actually get the latte, between that time, I'm still tired. I'm still exhausted. But that soon to becoming reality changes the ball game, doesn't it? It sustains me on the journey. I'm tired, but I'm gonna make it because there is a sure reality coming in my future. Now, let's shift the scene a little bit. If my wife has been up all night nurturing my sick infant, nurturing our sick infant, and if she is in the room and it's six in the morning and she is tired, she's exhausted, but she's been pouring herself out to try to care for this young child. And if I walked into the room with a cup of piping hot Starbucks coffee, and if I said in a warm voice with a smile, this never happened by the way, ever. This, I never did this. But if I walked in with a warm smile and I said, honey, good news. Starbucks is near. It is near. What does that signify? Well, relief and comfort and support is readily available to her. It is at hand. It is right there. It is within her grasp. And so with these illustrations and these ideas in mind, we might ask the question, well, which one is it? Which one does Paul intend in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, when he says, the Lord is near? I got to tell you, I think this is one of these incredible moments where one word in scripture is absolutely used to communicate two very powerful ideas that interlock and intersect. Because on one hand, I do believe that Paul grounds his instruction on combating fear of the future and anxiety, on combating unknown and uncertain futures, hear this, with the certainty the certainty of Jesus's future return. That a major part of Jesus being Lord over all, over everything, is that Jesus is also Lord over time. He's Lord over human history, orchestrating and working it all out to the great goal of uninhibited, vibrant life with God forever in the new heavens and new earth. 
And if Jesus is Lord over all, he knows how to get the job done. He knows how to sustain us. It's coming. He's getting us to the goal. So in this sense, the nearness of Jesus's return means that no matter what might happen to us in this present life, no matter what tragedy, no matter what pain, no matter what difficult circumstance, no matter what tension you experience in life as a follower of Jesus, no matter what your tomorrows might bring, even if it is the worst, our future is secure. And it is good. It is good. It's locked in. Why? Not because of something that we do, but because of who Jesus is. He's Lord because he's Lord over all of it. And in the meantime, in the meantime, between us here right now and that certain future of Jesus' second coming, as followers of Jesus wrestle with the real pains of anxieties in our lives, I think Jesus' nearness also means that he is not distant and he is not removed from your anxious struggle that Jesus is near. He is with his people in relationship. He's present with them as we war against anxiety and fear. And that Jesus is so eager to provide us strength, comfort, guidance, and sustaining grace, the sustaining grace of God that we need for us to make it through. Because Jesus not only secures our good future, Jesus is good to us in this struggle. He's good. And so what that means is that any moment, at any time, we can turn into the relationship throughout this sojourning in this life. We can turn to a near Lord, to a risen Lord, who is immediately there to comfort and sustain us. And so, if that's true, if we have this relationship, the certainty of our future, and we also have the relationship that we can lean on in comfort. How do we access that relationship in our lives? How do we access that in real time? Well, guys, I think this is where the new reality of Jesus's nearness in both senses gives way to this free invitation that God extends to us. And I believe that this free invitation is found after the command to not be anxious about anything. Paul goes on to say that in light of Jesus's nearness in those senses, you don't need to be anxious about anything. Instead, here's an antidote. Here's what you can do instead. He says, in every situation by, I want you to say it, by what? Prayer. Prayer. And prayer in every variety and kind. This word here for prayer is this idea of a conversational, interactive relationship with Jesus, because he's near. We also have petitions. This is the opportunity that followers of Jesus get to pray the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, please supply us with what we truly need as your people. Prayers of thanksgiving, rejoicing and celebrating in the fact that Jesus is with us giving thanks to God, to rejoice in the Lord always, to say it again and again and again and again. We rejoice in our connection with a good God who sent Jesus to die for us and to redeem us. And we get the opportunity to present our request to God. The things that are on our heart, the things that are burdening us in our lives, 
Because we have this amazing outlet and channel, direct access to God to let him know what's bugging us, to let him know what we're struggling with. So prayer is in all of it, in every circumstance, in every situation. That's what Paul says. In every situation. That no matter what we're going through, no matter the intensity of the anxiety, whether it is big or whether it's small, whether it's occasional, whether it's constant, whether it's just maybe subtly annoying or all the way over to crushingly burdensome. Guys, do you see this? We are invited to hand our concerns over to a present Jesus in prayer. And I love the way that one scholar describes what Paul is getting at when he offers this invitation Walter Hansen says this, literally Paul says, let your requests be made known to God. Hansen says, by telling us to let our requests be made known to God, Paul isn't presupposing that God doesn't know our needs before we give voice to them. So let me ask you, if, if God already knows what we need, if us praying to him about our struggles and our pain has nothing to do with cluing him in because he was previously oblivious, what is prayer for? Who is prayer for? Paul is not presupposing that God does not know our needs before we give voice to them. Instead, Paul is calling for full self-disclosure in God's presence, in his nearness. That by expressing our specific requests to God, what's happening? We're acknowledging that we are totally dependent upon him for every good thing that we could ever want in our lives. The preposition to in the phrase to God, present your requests to God, pictures this kind of prayer as a movement or orientation toward God. Prayer is orienting our lives toward God. I love this last phrase. We grow in an open relationship with God precisely when we present our specific needs and desires to him. Guys, isn't this an amazing invitation that we are invited into? And if you're like me, so often my prayer life is such a far cry from the beautiful portrait that I think is presented to us in Philippians 4 verse 6. That's because so many times, I just confess, I view prayer as something that I have to do to stay within God's good graces. Like God loved me enough to send Jesus for me, but once I say yes to Jesus, now I've got to do the command of prayer if I want to stay in the protective bubble of that benefit or of that relationship, to stay on God's good side. And that's probably why I often feel bad or I often feel guilty in seasons where my prayer life is anemic. Anybody with me? Well, because I think that I'm not living up to some contractual bargain between me and Jesus But that contractual bargain, guys, is something that I just invented in my own head. It's not biblical. Instead, what we have to see here in Philippians 4 is that prayer has nothing to do with my performance. It has nothing to do with me posturing myself before God or others. Instead, I think what we see here is that prayer is most fundamentally about honesty and transparency before God in our struggles. It is in prayer that we freely are able to relinquish the illusion of control to the one who knows our greatest need and greatest good 
and also has the power and the ability to work that good out. Whether that good is consistent with the thing I want or not. Prayer is the way that we lean into the relationship. And so, because of this new reality, because of the free invitation that's on offer to relinquish control, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, that we can cast all our anxieties upon Jesus because he cares for us. I think what we see in the conclusion of this passage is that these things lead to a certain promise, something you can take to the bank. Paul says it in verse seven. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. That peace that's given to us from God, it is a peace that is not engendered within ourselves or manufactured by something that we have within us. No, it is an alien peace. It is a peace that comes to us from outside of us. This peace, Paul says, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As do you see this? Followers of Jesus, in light of the paradigm shift of the new reality of Jesus' nearness, as we take what concerns us to God in this beautiful invitation of prayer, we are promised peace. And in the Bible, peace may be less like the absence of war or conflict or tension. It includes that, but peace in the Bible is so much, uh, it's, it's not as much the, the absence of something as it is the presence of something. We have to see that peace in scripture over and over and over again is the presence of flourishing, of beauty, of goodness, of teeming life, of order. Biblical peace is, in short form, life as God always intended it, as he always intended it. And we are told, do you see the gravity and the amazement what's said in this passage, that we are told that we can genuinely experience that kind of peace. Maybe not in its fullness until Christ returns, which is near, but it is no less peace. It's no less peace. It is a genuine, authentic article. And we are told that it is a peace that transcends all understanding. Most scholars believe that this phrase understanding here is an intentional reference to all the things that our mind does when we're anxious to spiral out of control in all the potential future-oriented scenarios. And what does Paul say? It's the peace of God, the thoroughgoing well-being and welfare that's going to surpass and go beyond the machinations in our mind. And Paul says that this peace of God will also do something, won't it? It'll protect us. It'll guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, guard against what? It's in the passage. This is a direct reference to verse six. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace is promised. This overwhelming holistic experience of knowing guys we're safe, we're safe, and we're secure because of Jesus. 
and that God himself has taken personal ownership to be active in our flourishing for our good, both now and all the way into eternity. And that's the truth. And so, as we think about these three features of the passage and how they change the dynamic of what Paul says when he says, don't be anxious for anything. As I couldn't help but, as I was preparing this week, I couldn't help but see an amazing, or like an astounding correlation between the three features that we looked at in this passage and the three main ingredients that go into anxiety that we talked about when we began our conversation this morning. That in a way, psychologists and counselors have done a phenomenal job of identifying the ingredients of anxiety, but in a way, 2,000 years before the discipline of psychology even came on the scene, God already knew, and he already provided a prescription. Guys, I just thought this was uncanny, and I'm gonna put this up here. And my, my prayer, it's just my prayer, is that God would use this just to illuminate something for you and to illuminate for you in the journey Jesus' lordship over your battle with anxiety and worry. That when anxiety tells you, I'm unsure, Philippians 4 says, no, the Lord is near in both of those senses. No matter what happens, I might not be sure, but no matter what happens, he's with me and he knows where he wants to take me and it's for my good. When anxiety, the crushing burden of anxiety says, I'm unable, I don't have the power. Philippians 4 says, then give it up to one who does. Let your requests be made known freely to God. And when anxiety tells you that you are unsafe, I'm unsafe. Philippians 4 says, no. Something is gonna guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You have the peace of God. Now, as we wind things down this morning, as we think about maybe transitioning from these ideas into practice, right? What does it look like to flesh out these things in our day-to-day that when anxiety comes in your life in the near future, what would it look like? What would change in the way that you battle with that? Listen, what I cannot provide you as we think practically, what I cannot provide you is a mathematical equation on overcoming your anxieties. This is not an algorithm here. Like that if we could just take whatever anxieties and worries that we're carrying and plug it in for X, that somehow we would be free of it. It's not how it works. Because guys, it can't, it can't work that way. Because I don't, I don't know what anxiety and fear of the future you brought in here with you this morning. I don't know that. It could be any number of things, right? Some of us walked in here this morning with crippling anxiety of the fear over finances, over money. I mean, maybe somebody today looked at their bank account and said, I don't know if I'm gonna make it tomorrow. I don't know. Some of you, you walked in here with the health scare. Maybe there's somebody in this room or somebody watching online that you've had the biopsy, but the results haven't come in yet. Some of you walked in here today with great concern for a loved one in your life, anxious about what's gonna happen to them. 
Some of you walked in with a relational tension and you fear that you might lose that relationship forever. And you don't know. And you feel unsafe and uncertain. Some of you walked in. You're like, if this deal at work doesn't go through, it's over. Some of you might have even walked in saying, I'm anxious for my three. We pray for our three here, three people that we know in our lives that we desperately want to come to know the hope of Jesus. Some of you are anxious for their soul. So listen, we don't have an algorithm. We can't predict this. But here's what we do have opportunity to do. So the band is gonna come up. And as they lead us in our time of worship, as we normally do on a weekend, I might suggest to you that we repurpose and reuse or just think differently about this space in light of this conversation this morning. And my recommendation, my suggestion, what I have on offer to you is this, that as we worship together, would you just consider praying to Jesus by the Holy Spirit and pray to Jesus and ask him to help surface just one fear of the future, just one thing that you carried in with you today that you're anxious about, just one thing. And then I'm just going to invite us all to consider these three features, to bring that to the Lord, to remind yourself again of what is true, that the Lord is near in your struggle. And let me just say, if you are not a follower of Jesus in this room, the Lord desires to be near to you and comfort you and to take you into the good future that he has for you. That is on offer to you because of what he did at the cross, the blood that he shed for you for your sins and his resurrection life makes it possible that this risen Lord wants a relationship with you and he wants to guide you into freedom from anxiety and liberation into every other thing that plagues you in life. And to respond to Jesus is key in faith and trust that he knows what he's doing handing your life over to him. It's not a magical incantation. It is simply saying, Jesus, I'm gonna give you my life and I want you to lead me into freedom from anxiety and fear. And if that's you in this room, I would implore you on behalf of Jesus to put your trust in Jesus today. And then for all of us to think about that one anxiety, to remind ourselves of the Lord's nearness, and then to respond to the free invitation. Take the anxiety and cast it at the foot of Jesus. Cast it at the foot of Jesus. He loves you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to take that from you and lead you into freedom. And then guys, I just want to see if we engage in that exercise together. All I want to do is just see what God does to bring you peace. Let's just see what he's capable of to fulfill. It's not my promise. It's his. Just see what God does to bring us peace. So as we close, I'm gonna pray for us, but maybe in a different way. I'm gonna pray Psalm 145 over our anxieties and fears. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear them, fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked, all the wicked he will destroy. 
my mouth, Lord, will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen.